today. I hope that you are doing well. Today's story is At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. It was written in 1931, but rejected by the magazine Weird Tales for publication. It wasn't published until 1936, when an editor picked up Lovecraft's tale for the magazine, Astounding Stories. The tale takes place during September 1930, where a group of wary explorers find themselves in disastrous conditions during an expedition in Antarctica. Told from the perspective of Dr. William Dyer, the tale is reflective of Lovecraft's fascination with the Antarctic continent and his unfulfilled desire for exploration. A very special thank you goes out to Kyle at PostCubicleKyle on Twitter for recommending this story as our next Lovecraft read. Now, sit back, close your eyes, and relax as I read H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness to you. Chapter 1 I am forced into speech because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing this contemplated invasion of the Antarctic, with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice caps. And I am the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubt of the real facts, as I must reveal them, it is inevitable. Yet, if I suppressed what will seem extravagant and incredible there, there would be nothing left for me. The hitherto withheld photographs, both ordinary and aerial, will count in my favor for they are damnably vivid and graphic. Still, they will be doubted because of the great lengths to which clever fakery can be carried. The ink drawings, of course, will be jeered at as obvious impostures, notwithstanding its strangeness of technique, which art experts ought to remark and puzzle over. In the end, I must rely on the judgment and standing of the few scientific leaders who have, on the one hand, sufficient independence of thought to weigh my data on its own hideously convincing merits, or in the light of certain primordial and highly baffling mythicals, and on the other hand, sufficient influence to deter the exploring world in general from any rash 
geologist, my objective in leading the Miskatonic University expedition was wholly that of securing deep-level specimens of rock and soil from various parts of the Antarctic continent, aided by the remarkable drill devised by Professor Frank H. Pabody of our engineering department. I had no wish to be a pioneer in any other field than this, but I did hope that the use of this new mechanical appliance at different points along previously explored paths would bring to light materials of a sort hitherto unreached by the ordinary methods of collection. Pabati's drilling apparatus, as the public already knows from our reports, was unique and radical in its lightness, portability, and capacity, combining the ordinary artisan drill principle with the principle of the small circular rock drill in such a way as to cope quickly with strata of varying hardness. Steel head, jointed rods, gasoline motor, collapsible wooden derrick, dynamiting paraphernalia, cording, rubbish removal auger, and sectional piping for bores five inches wide and up to 1,000 feet deep, all formed with needed accessories. No greater load than three seven-dog sleds could carry. This being made possible by the clever aluminum alloy of which most of the metal objects were fashioned. Four large airplanes designed especially for the tremendous altitude flying necessary on the Antarctic Plateau, and with added fuel warming and quick starting devices worked out by body, could transport our entire expedition from a base at the edge of the Great Ice Barrier to various suitable inland points. And from these points, a sufficient quota of dogs would serve us. We planned to cover as great an area as one Antarctic season, or longer, if absolutely necessary, would permit, operating mostly in the mountain ranges and on the plateau south of Ross Sea, regions explored in varying degree by Shackleton, Amundsen, Scott, and Bird with frequent changes of camp made by airplane and involving distances great enough to be of geological significance, we expected to unearth a quite unprecedented amount of material, 
especially in the pre-Cambian strata of which so narrow a range of Antarctic specimens had previously been secured. We wished also to obtain as great as possible a variety of the upper fossiliferous rocks since the primal life history of this bleak realm of ice and death is of the highest importance to our knowledge of the Earth's past. That the Antarctic continent was once temperate and even tropical, with a teeming vegetable and animal life of which the lichens, marine fauna, arachnida, and penguins of the northern edge are the only survivals, is a matter of common information, and we hope to expand that information in variety accuracy and detail. When a simple boring revealed fossiliferous signs, we would enlarge the aperture by blasting in order to get specimens of suitable size and condition. Our borings of varying depth according to the promise held out by the upper soil or rock were to be confined to or exposed, nearly exposed land surfaces. These tended to be slopes and ridges because of the mile and two-mile thickness of solid ice overlying the lower levels. We could not afford to waste drilling depth on any considerable amount of mere glacification, though Pabodi had worked out a plan for sinking copper electrodes in thick clusters of borings and melting off limited areas of ice with current from a gasoline-driven dynamo. It is this plan, which we could not put into effect except experimentally on an expedition such as ours, that the coming of Starkweather Moore Expedition proposes to follow, despite the warnings I have issued since our return from the Antarctic. The public knows of the Miskatonic Expedition through our frequent wireless reports to the Arkham Advertiser and Associated Press and through the later articles of Pabodi and myself. We consisted of four men from the university, Pabodi, Lake of the Biology Department, Atwood of the Physics Department, who was also a meteorologist, and I, representing geology and having nominal command. Aside from 16 assistants, seven graduate students from Miskatonic, and nine skilled mechanics. Of these sixteen, twelve were qualified airplane pilots, all but two of whom were competent wireless operators. Eight of them understood navigation with compass and sextant, as did Pabodi, Atwood, and I. In addition, of course, are two ships, wooden ex-whalers, reinforced for ice conditions and having auxiliary steam, were fully manned. The Nathaniel Derby Pickman Foundation, aided by a few special contributions, financed this expedition. Hence, our preparations were extremely thorough, despite the absence of great publicity. The dogs, sledges, machines, camp materials, and unassembled parts of our five planes were delivered in Boston, and there our ships were loaded. We were marvelously well equipped for our specific purposes, and in all matters pertaining to a supplies, regimen, 
transportation, and camp construction, we profited by the excellent example of our many recent and exceptionally brilliant predecessors. It was the unusual number and fame of these predecessors which made our own expedition, ample though it was, so little noticed by the world at large. As the newspapers told, we sailed from Boston Harbor on September 2nd, 1930, taking a leisurely course down the coast and through the Panama Canal. We stopped at Samoa and Hobart, Tasmania, at which later place we took on final supplies. None of our exploring party had ever been in the polar regions before, hence we all relied greatly on our ship captains, J.B. Douglas commanding the brig Arkham and serving as commander of the sea party, Greg Thorfinson commanding the Baroque Miskatonic, both veteran whalers in Antarctic waters. As we left the inhabited world behind, the sun sank lower and lower in the north and stayed longer and longer above the horizon each day. At about 62 degrees south latitude, we sighted our first icebergs, table-like objects with vertical sides. And just before reaching the Antarctic Circle, which we crossed on October 20th with appropriately quaint ceremonies, we were considerably troubled with peeled ice. The falling temperature bothered me considerably after our long voyage through the tropics, but I tried to brace up for the worst rigors to come. On many occasions, the curious atmospheric effects enchanted me vastly. These included a strikingly vivid mirage, the first I had ever seen, in which distant bergs became the battlements of unimaginable cosmic castles. Pushing through the ice, which was fortunately neither extensive nor thickly packed, we regained open water at south latitude 67 degrees, east longitude 175 degrees. On the morning of October 26th, a strong land brink appeared on the south, and before noon we all felt a thrill of excitement at beholding a vast, lofty, and snow-cloud mountain chain which opened out and covered the whole vista ahead. At last, we had encountered an outpost of the great unknown continent and its cryptic world of frozen death. These peaks were obviously the Admiralty Range discovered by Ross, and it would now be our task to round Cape Adare and sail down the east coast of Victoria Land our contemplated base on the shore of McMurdo Sound at the foot of the volcano Erebus in south latitude 77 degrees. The last lap of the voyage was vivid and fancy-stirring. Great barren peaks of mystery looming up 
constantly against the west as the low northern sun of noon or the still lower horizon grazing southern sun of midnight poured its hazy reddish rays over the white snow, bluish ice and water lanes and black bits of exposed granite slope. Through the desolate summits swept raging, intermittent gusts of the terrible Antarctic wind, whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping, and notes extending over a wide range, and which for some had subconscious mnemonic reason, which seemed to me disquieting and even dimly terrible. Something about the scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorch, and of the still stranger and more disturbing descriptions of the evilly fabled plateau of Lang, which occur in the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Sarid. I was rather sorry later on that I had ever looked into that monstrous book in the college library. On the 7th of November, sight of the westward range had been temporarily lost. We passed Franklin Island, and the next day decried the cones of Mounts Erebus and Terror on Ross Island ahead, with the long line of the Perry Mountains beyond. There now stretched off to the east the low, white line of the great ice barrier, rising perpendicularly to a height of 200 feet, like the rocky cliffs of Quebec, and marking the end of southward navigation. In the afternoon, we entered McMurdo Sound and stood off the coast in the lee of smoking Mount Erebus. The Scoriac Peak towered up some 12,700 feet against the eastern sky, like a Japanese print of the sacred Puchiyama, while beyond it rose the white, ghost-like height of Mount Terror, 10,900 feet in altitude, and now extinct as a volcano. Puffs of smoke from Erebus came intermittently, and one of the graduate assistants, a brilliant young fellow named Danforth pointed out what looked like lava on the snowy slope. He remarked that this mountain, discovered in 1840, had undoubtedly been the source of Poe's image when he wrote seven years later. The lavas that restlessly roll, their sulfurous currents down Yannick, the ultimate climbs of the pole that groan as they roll down Mount Yannick in the realms of the boreal pole. Danforth was a great reader of bizarre material and had talked a great deal of Poe as well. I was interested myself because of the Antarctic scene of Poe's only long story, the disturbing tale of Arthur Gordon Pym. On the barren shore, and on the lofty ice barrier in the background, 
Myriads of grotesque penguins squawked and flapped their fins. Also, many fat seals were visible in the water, swimming or sprawling across large cakes of slowly drifting ice. Using small boats, we effected a difficult landing on Ross Island shortly after midnight on the morning of the night. We carried a line of cable from each of the ships and prepared to unload supplies by means of a breeches buoy arrangement. Our sensations on first treading Antarctic soil were poignant and complex, even though, at this particular point, the Scott and Shackleton expeditions had preceded us. Our camp on the frozen shore below the volcano's slope was only a provisional one, headquarters being kept abroad at the Arkham. We landed all of our drilling apparatus, dogs, sledges, tents, provisions, gasoline tanks, experimental ice-melting outfits, cameras both ordinary and aerial, aeroplane parts, and other accessories, including three small portable wireless outfits besides those in the planes, which were capable of communicating with the Arkham's large outfit from any part of the Antarctic continent that we would be likely to visit. The ship's outfit communicating with the outside world was to convey press reports to the Arkham Advertiser's powerful wireless station on Kingsport Head, Massachusetts. We hoped to complete our work during a single Antarctic summer, but if this proved impossible, we would winter on the Arkham, sending the Mesotonic north before freezing of the ice for another summer supplies. I did not repeat what the newspapers have already published about our early work, of our ascent of Mount Erebus, our successful mineral borings at several points on Ross Island, and the singular speed with which Pabodi's apparatus accomplished them. Even though solid rock layers are provisional tests of the small ice-melting equipment and our perilous ascent of the Great Barrier with sledges and supplies, and our final assembling of five huge airplanes was done at the camp atop the barrier. The health of our land party, 20 men and 55 Alaskan sledge dogs, was remarkable, though of course we had so far encountered no really destructive temperatures or windstorms. For the most part, the thermometer varied between zero and 20 degrees, or 25 degrees above. Our experiences with New England winters had accustomed us to rigors of this sort. The barrier camp was semi-permanent, and destined to be a storage cache for gasoline, provisions, dynamite, and other supplies. Only four of our planes were needed to carry the actual exploring material. 
the fifth plane, being left with the pilots and two men from the ships at the storage cache to form a means of reaching us from the Arkham, just in case all of our exploring planes were lost. Later, when not using all the other planes for moving apparatus, we would employ one or two in a shuttle transportation service between this cache and another permanent base on the Great Plateau from 600 to 700 miles southward, somewhere beyond Beardmore Glacier. Despite the almost unanimous accounts of appalling winds and tempests that pour down from the plateau, we determined to dispense with immediate basis, taking our chances in the interest of economy and probable efficiency. Wireless reports have spoken of the breathtaking four-hour non-stop flight of our squadron on November 21st over the lofty shelf ice with vast peaks rising on the west and the unfathomed silences echoing to the sound of our engines. Wind troubled us only moderately and our radio compasses helped us through the one opaque fog we encountered. When the vast rise loomed ahead between latitudes 83 degrees and 84 degrees, we knew we had reached Beardmore Glacier, the largest valley glacier in the world, and that the frozen sea was now giving place to a frowning and mountainous coastline. At last, we were truly entering the white, aeon-dead world of the ultimate south. And even as we realized it, we saw the peak of Mount Nansen in the eastern distance, towering up to its height of almost 15,000 feet. The successful establishment of the southern base above the glacier in latitude 86 degrees, 7 east longitude, 174 degrees, and the phenomenally rapid and effective borings and blastings made at various points reached by our sledge trips and short airplane flights are matters of history as is the arduous and triumphant descent of Mount Nansen by Pavodi and two of the graduate students, Gedney and Carol, on December 13th through December 15th. We were some 8,500 feet above sea level, and when experimental drillings revealed solid ground, only 12 feet down through the snow and ice at certain points. We made considerable use of the small melting apparatus and sunk bores and performed dynamiting at many places where no previous explorer had ever thought of securing mineral specimens. The Precambrian granites and beacon sandstones thus obtained confirmed our belief 
that this plateau was homogeneous with the great bulk of the continent to the west, but somewhat different from the parts lying eastward below South America, which we then thought to form a separate and smaller continent divided from the larger one by a frozen junction of Ross and Weddell seas, though Bird has since disproved this hypothesis. Incertain of the sandstones, dynamited and chiseled after boring, revealed their nature. We found some highly interesting fossil markings and fragments, notably ferns, seaweeds, trilobites, and such mollusks as linguae and gasteropods, all of which seemed of real significance in connection with the region's primordial history. There was also a strange triangular striated marking about a foot in greatest diameter, which Lake pieced together from three fragments of slate brought up from a deep blasted aperture. These fragments came from a point to the westward near the Queen Alexandra Range and Lake, as a biologist, seemed to find their curious markings unusually puzzling and provocative though to my geological eye, it looked not unlike some of the ripple effects reasonably common in the sedimentary rocks. Since slate is no more than a metamorphic formation into which a sedimentary stratum is pressed, and since the pressure itself produces odd distorting effects on any markings which may exist, I saw no reason for extreme wonder over the striated depression. On January 6, 1931, Lake, Pabodi, Danforth, all six of the students, four mechanics, and I flew directly over the South Pole into the Great Plains, being forced down once by a sudden high wind which fortunately did not develop into a tropical storm. This was, as the papers have stated, one of several observation flights, during others of which we tried to discern new topographical features in areas unreached by previous explorers. Our early flights were disappointing in this latter respect though they afforded us some magnificent examples of the richly fantastic and deceptive mirages of the polar regions, of which our sea voyage had given us some brief foretastes. Distant mountains floated in the sky as enchanted cities, and often the whole white world would dissolve into a gold, silver, and scarlet land of Dunsian dreams and adventurous expectancy under the magic of the low midnight sun. On cloudy days, we had considerable trouble in flying, owing to the tendency of snowy earth and sky 
to merge into one mystical, opalescent void with no visible horizon to mark the junction of the two. At length, we resolved to carry out our original plan of flying 500 miles eastward with all four exploring planes and establishing a fresh sub-base at a point which would probably be on the smaller continental division as we mistakenly conceived it. Geological specimens obtained there would be desirable for purposes of comparison. Our health so far had remained excellent, lime juice well offsetting the steady diet of tinned and salted food, and temperatures generally above zero enabling us to do without our thickest furs. It was now midsummer, and with haste and care, we might be able to conclude work by March and avoid a tedious wintering through the long Antarctic night. Several savage windstorms had burst upon us from the west, but we had escaped damage through the skill of Atwood in devising rudimentary airplane shelters and windbreaks of heavy snow blocks and reinforcing the principal camp buildings with snow. Our good luck and efficiency had indeed been almost uncanny. The outside world knew, of course, of our program and was told also of Lake's strange and dodged insistence on a westward, or rather, northwestward, prospecting trip before our radical shift to the new base. It seems he had pondered a great deal, and with alarmingly radical daring, over the triangular, striated marking in the slate, reading into it certain contradictions in nature and geological period which whetted his curiosity to the utmost and made him avid to sink more borings and blastings in the west-stretching formation to which the exhumed fragments evidently belonged. He was strangely convinced that the marking was the print of some bulky, unknown, and radically unclassifiable organism of considerably advanced evolution, notwithstanding that the rock which bore it was oh so vastly ancient in date, Cambrian, if not actually pre-Cambrian, as to preclude the probable existence not only of all highly evolved life, but of any life at all above this unicellular, or at most, Trilobite stage. These fragments, with their odd marking, must have been 500 million to 1,000 million years old. And this, my darling, ends chapter one of Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. I hope that you are able to rest and maybe fall asleep. We will resume with chapter two next time. Have very sweet.
and creepy dreams. Good night.